Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Traveling Image Makers podcast with your host, Ugo Che. I'm uh, once again alone on the show because my buddy Ralph is uh, having too much fun in Asia. I think he's in Cambodia, CM Rep today. Uh, too busy just leading people around and probably not a good network connection. So I'm going, it's going to be uh, just me for uh, once again. He will be back uh, uh, on the next episode for sure. Um, regardless, uh, we have a fantastic uh, guest uh, today uh, who is again from Chicago. We have, aside from Ralph, who is from Chicago himself, but is not in Chicago today, we had a bunch of guests from Chicago recently. I don't know why. It seems to attract a lot of photo- photographic talent. And, uh, so just a warm welcome to Jordana Wright, who is with us today. Hi, Jordana. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on the show. It's great to have you here. We've been, uh, I think we've been connected, I think originally on Google Plus and on Facebook too for a number of years, but we never had a, a chance to maybe to talk to each other. Maybe I, I seem to remember I had a maybe chatted with your husband once or twice back in the days where everybody was on Google Plus, we were doing hangouts and those kind of things. This, these were good times. It's a bit sad that they're not uh, like that anymore. Right? I know. I wish Google Plus was still as relevant as it used to be. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a pity. But, I mean, I built a lot of relationships there and carried them over to Facebook that I wasn't using at the time. So Absolutely. Still, still and Instagram, too. And Instagram, too. Right. So uh, just let me introduce uh, you, Jordana, to our audience who might not know, those few that might not know about you. <laughs> uh, you have been uh, shooting professionally uh, travel for over a decade and sharing your love of photography with clients, uh, doing, doing, doing workshops uh, with inspiring photographers around the world. You've presented two TEDx talks You've led dozens of photo walks across the United States, been published in a variety of media outlets, including the New York Times, and you've done a lot of uh, exciting personal photographic projects. The reason why I asked you to be a guest on the show is that because uh, you recently, I think, finished or in the process of finishing your uh, debut photography book, the Enthusiast's Guide to Travel Photography. I think it will be, it's not yet available. It will be released uh, in June 2018 from Rocky Nook, which is one of the most reputable, long-standing publishers with a lot of, lots of titles about photography. So congratulations to you for being published by such a renowned house. Thank you. Uh, what else? When you, as we were saying, you live in Chicago. So when you're not traveling around, uh, you live in Chicago with your husband and your pitbull Dutch. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you're very active on social media, including Instagram and Facebook. So we will uh, put links to your website, your social media profiles in the show notes, and of course, to your book. And I think your book is available for pre-order already, is it? It is. It's available for pre-order on Amazon. Um, I believe it's going to also be available for pre-order on the Rocky Nook website, but they're in the middle of doing a total revamping of their website. So I don't think it's quite ready yet, but soon it will be. Great. So how hard was to write the book? I'm trying to write a book myself. I've been working on and off on it for months. I never seem to, to see the end. So tell me about the process. Uh, was it your idea? Did you submit to different publishers? Were you contacted by a publisher? How, how did it happen? So I had contacted Rocky Nook after I wrote an article about Jack Dakinga's book that just came out, and that was also published through Rocky Nook. So I wrote an article about that and did an interview with him for uh, Resource Travel, the online website. Um, and that went really well, and I love talking to their editors in the process of putting that art article together. And for a long time, I wanted to make a book about some of my travel experiences. So I contacted them with an idea, and they said, well, you know, we're doing this enthusiast guide series, and we don't have an enthusiast guide to travel photography. So they asked if I would like to spearhead that project. So we kind of designed the idea together through like some of my concepts and what they really needed in their library. Oh, that, that's great, meaning you didn't have a long history of uh, rejections. That's, I know many people... No, super lucky. <laughs> super lucky. I mean, lots of people that write a book and then start submitting it to different publishers only to be rejected again and again and again. It was... Uh, one of my favorite books is the The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, and it tells the story of how his first books were all rejected multiple times by multiple publishers before he actually had a breakthrough with uh, with one. So I know it's not easy; it's uh, that the market is uh, is saturated. So it means you you had a really good idea, probably, and they they were enthusiastic about that. So good for you. Thank you. Um, how long did it take uh, for you to write it? So I'm still writing. Um, the manuscript is due January 1st. I'm almost there. It's definitely a process. It mm. takes a lot of dedication because I have to build it into my regular workflow. And I'm a full-time photographer. So there's a lot less sleep than there used to be in my life. Um, but it's going really well. It's it's hard, you know, to, to sit down and commit to it. And with photography, I feel like I can pick up a camera and shoot anytime. I don't have to be in a specific mood for it. I've just been doing it so long that it's what I'm ready to do at any given moment. Writing is totally different. Like I have to be in a very specific mood and I have to have like notes set up so that I know what I'm going to be writing. Putting together the outline for the book and determining what I would cover was probably the easiest part, but unpacking each lesson and trying to design things that are going to be really useful for the reader and not just me babbling is that's the hardest part. I know that feeling, the dread uh, <laughs> that you get when you look at the white page. <laughs> oh, now I've got to write something and I have no idea what to write. 
Exactly. It's been really helpful too, just to look through my past images and like read some of my old travel journals because I always keep journals when I travel. And that helps me reconnect with the memories of what my experiences were and try to find useful ways of sharing those experiences with photographers that will help them in some way. I love what you just said. Uh, Think about uh, uh, keeping a journal of your travels. Uh, we've been discussed this with uh, with other guests in the past. Um, I, I believe it's it's really important because absolutely, it's, it's not only the photos that the journal will help you reconnect with that moment, the feelings, maybe the smells, the the sounds, the uh, the light that was there, uh, the, maybe the problems you had with getting a particular image. So you can build a story out of that. Sometimes just the photo itself is not enough to uh, bring up all those memories again. So um, I had guests recommending that travel photographers should keep a journal. I try to do it myself. It's uh, it's hard to find the time sometimes. But as you said, you, you confirm that again. It uh, can be really a lifesaver in some, some situations when... You never know. Somebody might ask you to to write a book or to write an article about your travel to Cambodia or Nicaragua or whatever. And having those notes can be really helpful, right? Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And it's not like I sit down and I write, Dear Diary, today I met the most wonderful man. It's like It's more like a bullet list of points that things that stood out to me experiences I had, challenges, places I visited that I don't want to forget. Um, And then I also use my cell phone as kind of a reference uh, for my my travels as I go. So I'll take pictures of like pertinent signs. I use that for um, keeping track of my travels with like Google Maps. And I just try to make as much of a record as I can so that I can reference it later and without having to spend a lot of time in the fields. Right. And the book's title is The Enthusiast's Guide to Travel Photography. So who is the enthusiast? Uh, Is it aimed to mostly beginners, people who want to explore travel photography, more seasoned travelers and photographers? So the Enthusiast Guide series, because they have a whole series of enthusiast guides now. So they have Enthusiast Guide to Portraiture, Enthusiast Guide to Composition, um, there's an enthusiast guide to DIY photography, and then they also have the post-processing aspects. So there's like a Lightroom book and a Photoshop book. So the intended audience is, um, a photographer that has some foundational knowledge, like they know how to use their camera, what aperture and shutter speed are, how to make adjustments, but they don't necessarily have a depth of knowledge in any one specific direction. So this is to help them pick a topic and sort of develop their talents in that area as they read. So the way it's written, each chapter is an individual lesson that can be taken on its own. So you don't have to sit down and read the entire book. You can sit down and read a chapter and then try out what you're taught in that chapter and then move on when you have time. Uh I see. Uh, You sent me uh, an excerpt, a draft of one of the chapters. Uh, um, which is uh, speaks about working around uncontrollable conditions. Uh, something that is, uh, I, I think, is very important. So I wanted to 
discuss with you a bit about uh, your your lessons in that in that respect because uh, many travel photographers uh, i think probably all of them don't have the luxury of having an infinite amount of time uh, sometimes we we do travel photography when we take vacations Uh, you have a studio, right, you say, so you're probably not traveling full-time. You cannot afford to go to India for three months and wait for the, uh, in a, at the Taj Mahal for the exact right conditions for two weeks, right? You have to, to make the best of what the, the weather, uh, the light uh, gives you. So it's, it's important to be able to, to bring home something, and even if you have uh, limited time, And you have to make do with uh, with what conditions you find. I think that's the uh, the gist of that chapter, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, when I travel, I'm definitely under a time crunch. If I'm traveling for a client for a specific shoot, I only have so much time to get the shots done. And then I only have so much time to take the shots that I wanted to get while I'm there for my own personal use. So I have to be really fast on my feet and able to adapt to changing situations. And I think that's the case for anybody who's traveling because we don't have endless supplies of money and time. We really focus all of our energy into planning this amazing trip. But if something goes wrong, we have to be able to still get those photos and move on to the next thing. So I really wanted to target that specific situation because it can be so frustrating to have this shot in mind and then never have the opportunity to take it because something is getting in your way. So let's, uh, let's look at some of the situations that you describe in your, in your book, uh, some things that might happen uh, not as planned, might make it more difficult to get the shot and what are your strategies, your tricks to overcome those difficulties. And one of them is uh, unfortunately one that is becoming more and more uh, frequent because right nowadays uh, traveling is uh, something that is affordable to a lot of people. Travel has become uh, convenient and in many cases cheap. So many places are overcrowded you find tourists everywhere. And those tourists sometimes are not uh, very well-mannered. <laughs> they, they don't care much about your shot, so they tend to get, uh, get in the way. Um, uh, you also have... Uh, uh, every one of your topics is illustrated by one of more of your photos. And I think to illustrate this topic, you have a photo of the uh, Temple of Dender at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. So uh, maybe you want to, to tell what difficulties you had getting that shot and why and how you managed to work around them. Sure. Um, I definitely would say that tourists are one of the biggest challenges in travel photography. And it's because these places are so amazing. You're not the first person who had the idea to go to this place. And unfortunately, people are very caught up in their own interests and their own views and their own shots. Um, a lot of times you would think that other photographers would be more respectful of the shot that you're trying to get, but they're very concerned about their own. And we have to kind of learn how to work together and work around each other. So I... I'm from New York originally, and the Temple of Dendor in the Met is like one of my favorite childhood haunts. Um, so I went back over the summer and was just 
mobbed by people. And I don't think I remembered it being as busy as it is. I don't know if it was just a little quieter in the 80s or if it has that like shine of childhood that you just don't remember. But it was definitely overrun with tourists and not just tourists that were actively moving, which is easier to work around, but tourists who were sitting down and looking at their phones. And it can add some in, some interest to a shot to have tourists who are observing the the things that you're trying to photograph. But when you have someone who's just sitting there looking at a screen and it creates that glow on their face, it really detracts from an image. So for that setting, I just kind of tried to space out my shots and gauge how the crowd was moving and do some slightly longer exposures, like four seconds, eight seconds, so that I could blur some people out. You still have a presence of um, tourists in your images. It's not like you're totally erasing them. And I don't really believe in totally erasing them because it's not telling the true story of that moment, but it makes them less of a focus of the image. Uh, as an aside, I know it has nothing to do with photography, but those people who go to a place like that, the Metropolitan and especially the Temple of Danger, and all they do is looking at their phones, their devices. Uh, I mean, it detracts from your photos, but I mean, it detracts from their experience so much. I, I can't believe how people are doing that. Just, I mean, if you want to do that, just stay home or go in the park, which is just, if I remember right, it's the Metropolitan yeah, it's right <laughs> Central Park. Go to the park and look at your phone there. You don't have to even pay a ticket. To get <laughs> okay, so I just, think so much of it with the cell phones is just, it's not even that they're interested in what they're looking at. It's that they don't know how to fill dead time anymore. Like we don't know how to experience a place without Instagramming it and Snapchatting it and telling everyone where we are so we can be seen. It's really, it's a weird era in human history. That, that, that I understand. I mean, okay, people wanting to show where, where they are, right? We, we used to do so when we were shooting film. We go, would go to a place and then we would print our film or we do, would do slideshows and show all of our friends and family who could ask no more than just be spared the, the torture. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I understand the, the desire to, to show, okay, I'm here. Uh, even the selfie, the occasional selfie. Uh, I don't, but I think many of those people are just, uh, they might take a photo there and then start uh, uh, looking at their friends' fake Facebook streams and just not looking at the monument. Just, okay, anyway, that's, I don't want to, <laughs> to bore our audience to death with those considerations that have nothing to do with photography and more with the, um, strangeness of uh, modern life but yeah just wanted to, to say that um, uh, what else uh, you said an exposure of uh, four seconds maybe or more that means you use the tripod is it possible to use a tripod in there so I'm not totally clear on what the rules are I didn't see many people using a tripod but when I'm in a place like that I use something with a lower profile um, I started using the Platypod Max recently, which is this really nice, small um, platform, basically, that you can attach any, any tripod head to. So I use my ball head, and I just put it on there, and then I put the camera on the floor mm -hmm. of the museum. And it was, I was pretty much out of the way, and nobody bothered me with it. 
Um, it's a lot easier when you're using a lower profile tripod like that to get the shots that you need. True. Uh, I think it's better to just do it and then ask for forgiveness than ask for exactly. permission first. I've been using that, that technique a bit myself with a very, I use a, one of those tabletop tripods, very short, which basically uh-huh. means the camera is the, the floor level. Uh, I do that a lot in, a lot in churches especially when you have steps leading to an altar, which is typical of many Gothic or Romanesque churches, where the altar is higher than the floor of the church. So I would sit at the topmost step, looking towards the the aisle of the church and putting the, the camera be between my legs. I'm just sitting on the floor on the step and putting the camera sure. there and then taking a, a shot from there with a very small tripod. It, it tends to work well and nobody nobody complains. I'm not really using a tripod. I could just put the camera on the floor. That's not forbidden yet. Correct. <laughs> so that's uh, that's another good uh, good technique. Right. So what, what else can happen uh, that gets in your plans? Like bad weather. What about bad weather? What do you do? What do you do when you have bad weather? Maybe you can tell a, a story about that. Sure. Um, so there was, well, the British Virgin Islands, which is a place that's very close to my heart. My husband and I were married there, um, and they're going through kind of a hard time right now after Hurricane Irma. But I was there on a trip, say almost nine years ago. And there was one day that was just totally rained out. And you have this concept of a Caribbean vacation that it's going to be beautiful and sunny and you're going to be able to fill every moment with those incredible, authentic beach shots with the fun and the sun and the sand. And this day was just a total washout. The rain was just this constant drizzle. The light was totally flat and kind of boring. Um, And I was sort of at a loss for what to photograph. So we took our our little SUV and kind of drove up this mountain down all these like gravel roads and stuff. And we found this crazy area with all these windswept trees. And there was kind of this fog in the air. And I've been to BVI 10 times at this point, and I've never seen conditions like this again. And it was just this super nice, thick fog that just had this kind of fairy tale atmosphere to it. And, you know, it's not necessarily the shot that I had in my mind when I was planning the trip, but it was the conditions that I was given and I made the most of it. And to this day, it's one of my favorite pictures I've taken in BVI. Great. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. There's uh, many people would just uh, think of staying in a hotel during a day like that. But I think there's something to be to be found with every weather. And especially in in your in your book, you mentioned having gear, rain gear for your camera to to protect it, so you're still able to to photograph even if it's raining. Exactly. I mean, typically, bright, beautiful sunshine isn't the most interesting photographically. When you start to have some dimension in the sky with clouds, and it gives you more dimensional light that's when you can get some of the most beautiful shots. So if the conditions are feeling crummy, you got to go out anyway. Um, So I usually travel with some rain gear. In a pinch, you can use a hotel 
shower cap and just put it over the back of your camera with the elastic opening over the lens. And that just gives you some protection while you can still shoot. Um, and you don't have to spend a lot of money and you can kind of rig it up on the spur of the moment if you need to. Um, so, you know, just keep, just keep shooting because those conditions are never going to be that way again. And you're lucky enough to be able to see it. Especially if I'm, uh, I'm on a, in a city at night, I would pray for rain. Because when, when it rains in the city and you get the, the reflections on the, on the street, from the, from the street lights and the, the, the shop windows and so on, and everything gets much more interesting, sometimes even magical. So, Absolutely. Uh, I hope that it rains in those cases. <laughs> I was <laughs> doing just my recent trip to Thailand, got a night like that in, in Chiang Mai. I was with my family. And they would, yeah, can we please go back to our, to our hotel because it's raining, we don't know where to stay. And so, no, well, just a little bit more. We stay out a little bit more. I take a bit more photos. I was just having too much fun because of the rain. So, yeah. And sometimes the rain or, even, or bad weather also, uh, you hinted at it, at it I think, uh, means bad light or I mean boring light. Overcast skies flat white skies and so on which uh, not the best light but you can still find good photographs even in those conditions right absolutely um if i have a super smooth white sky and it just looks really boring what i'll do a lot of times is just crop the sky completely out of the image and compose for the landscape rather than the sky and a lot of times those super overcast skies will really kind of saturate the colors um, in nature so there's definitely there's definitely um, positives with that kind of lighting and if you're doing any kind of portraiture a flat white sky is super flattering light on most people so mm -hmm. you can definitely work around it um, it's just a question of being creative and forcing yourself to rise to the challenge Yeah, that's something that not many people realize that uh, in some situations, actually having uh, overcast skies gives you better colors, more saturated colors, especially if you're shooting greenery uh, you know, in a forest like that. It's, it's ideal light, as long as you don't put the sky in your frame or too much of the sky exactly. in your frame. I think that that's important to, to underline. I was... Uh, Uh, lucky to be in the Plitvice Falls National Park in Croatia. And the one time I went there, uh, again, I was uh, many times I do travel on vacation with family and friends. And I'm not saying they were miserable because the, 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 the place is beautiful, but it was overcast and cold <laughs> and, and a little bit rainy as well. And they were saying, oh, you must be so sad because you don't have a bright sun, so your photos will not be good. And I said, no, on the contrary, I'm happy as a clam <laughs> because the conditions are just perfect for these situations. And especially with waterfalls, as you certainly know, uh, having bright light, the, the direct sun hitting the waterfall will blow out the water, it will be white out or... Or if you want to expose for the water, everything else will be underexposed. Uh, soft overcast light is perfect condition for for those kind of places. So if I'm at a, a place with waterfalls in the forest, 
I pray for overcast skies. Is that right? Yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah, what about time? You have a story about uh, uh, racing against a volcano, let's say so. (laughs) Yeah, in your book. Can you tell that story about what to do with time constraints in this case? Sure. Um, so this story specifically is about Messiah volcano in Nicaragua and it's, it's a definitely an active volcano. It doesn't have like lava flowing down the sides like you would find in Hawaii. Um, but you can look down into the mouth of the volcano and see the lava kind of boiling in there. Um, so typically they will close it periodically depending on conditions because the fumes get really bad. So it had been closed for a couple of weeks leading up to my visit and I was really hoping it was going to reopen because I wanted to look down into the depths of the volcano and I got super lucky. They reopened it, but you were only allowed to be there for 15 minutes at a time. So for someone who'd never shot a volcano before, that felt like an extreme challenge. 15 minutes seems like a lot in discussion, but when you're there and you're shooting, it flies by in the blink of an eye. So we waited in line because they would let so many cars through at a time. So we waited in line in the car to get in. And while I was in the car, I was setting up my camera Um, choosing what lens I was going to do. I realized that I wouldn't have time to change lenses multiple times and get different kinds of shots. Um, So I decided to shoot with my zoom lens because I knew I was going to be really high up compared to the lava, to the level of the lava. So I wanted to get that like tight crop of the the motion of the lava. So I used um, my 70 to 300 millimeter and I had that all set to go on my camera I made sure my batteries were charged, I had room on my card, and I had my tripod fully extended so that the second they let us out of the cars, I basically ran over to the ram and started shooting. And the 15 minutes was gone in like the blink of an eye. It was so crazy. It's the fastest 15 minutes I've ever experienced. Um, And I had wanted to do some video and I wanted to take selfies with my phone and none of those things happened, but I did get my shot because I was ready to go. So I think anytime you're in a situation where you know you're going to have to rush, just sort of talk yourself mentally through what your process is going to be so that you can just jump right in and start shooting. Great. This happens right uh, at the right time for me. I was reading a book. Uh, just yesterday, which has nothing to do with photography. Uh, and the book is called The Recipe. I don't remember the, the author's name. I will uh, put a link in the show notes. It's a great book. And it has nothing to do with uh, with photography. It has all to do with cooking. And it's the story of a, a young boy who gets uh, mentored by a chef. And the lessons that the chef gives, uh, which are condensed in a set of rules. And I was thinking how those rules apply to photography. And one of the, of the rules is about uh, organizing your, your space. Uh, a chef has to have everything that he needs to cook a particular recipe right where it needs to be, near his hands, so he can reach out to all the ingredients, all the tools that he needs at exactly the right time without having to figure out, oh, where did I put my spoon? Okay, well, where did I put the garlic? So, and there's this scene in the book where the chef is cooking an omelette blindfolded. 
Um, so that, that, that's the lesson. And I think this applies to photography as well. Uh, it's important that you have your bag organized. So you know where to find everything. And when you're short on time, you don't want to spend, you have 15 minutes, you don't want to spend 10 of those minutes rummaging in your bag, trying to find, I don't know, the polarizer filter or the remote control or anything else. You want everything to be exactly where you expect it to be. So you can put your hand in the bag without looking in the bag and find what you need and be ready to shoot. So I think that's... uh, uh, that very much aligns with what you are saying about uh, being prepared and everything ready to go at, at an instant's notice. Absolutely. That's a good analogy. It is very much like, like a recipe because you have so many elements that you're using time and time again, and you have to know how they're going to come into play when you're trying to get your shot. Unfortunately, so many of the beautiful conditions in the world, like amazing lighting, it's all fleeting. You know, you don't have endless opportunities to shoot it and get it just right. So the more you can prepare yourself by being organized and knowing your gear, the better off you're going to be. Yeah, and also know your gear. That That's very important. I would never stop recommending that people get really familiar with their camera or any other gear. I mean, you don't want, you have, a few minutes and you have gorgeous light. The sun is setting. You know the light will be gone in minutes. And you're trying to figure out the way to set, uh, change your ISO or set the, the remote timer on the camera. That's not something you, that's not a situation you want to be in. <laughs> no, not at all. Great, great. I see we, we agree on so many things. That's, uh, that's good. <laughs> um, uh, you mentioned Nicaragua, so I think we are about to, to wrap up this conversation. But since you mentioned Nicaragua, I know that's a country that is very dear to your heart. Uh, you're planning to go there again and, uh, and lead a tour there, I think. Do you want to uh, let, us, uh, let our audience know about that? Sure. Um, Yeah, I'm leading a workshop called Nicaragua Awaits. It's from March 1st to March 8th of 2018. Um, There's information about it on my website. But basically, this is a photographically minded trip. But it's also about the experiences, the authentic experiences that you can have in Nicaragua. We have a great friend, my husband and I, when I'm saying we, that's who I'm referring to. Um, My husband and I have a great friend there named Nicanor, who is um, a professional tour guide. And he showed us around on our first trip. And we just fell in love with all the sites that he showed us. So when we developed this itinerary, we included him in a lot of the decision making. And he's going to be with us every step of the way to help interpret and give some background information on cultural relevance and history. And he knows all the ecology information that you'd want to know as you're shooting. So we're going to have that aspect covered. Um, And we're going to see all kinds of stuff. We're going to go to Messiah Volcano so that people can shoot down into the volcano like I did. We're doing a day trip to San Juan del Sur, which is a famous um, surf town on the Pacific coast. We're doing a coffee plantation tour so people can see the full coffee process and photograph that. And we're exploring the historic city of Granada, which is almost 500 years old and has some of the most beautiful architecture I've personally experienced. So it's a really nice um, overview of Nicaragua. We're not going to get to do everything, but it's going to give 
uh, participants a really good concept of the country, and hopefully they're going to fall in love with it as much as I have. Yeah, of course, you cannot give uh, see a country all a country and experience it in uh, in a week or so. But it's uh, it's great to have so much variety and see various aspects of the uh, the nature, the history, the as you said, coffee plantations, which are, I think, an integral part of the culture of so many countries of Central America and South America and so on. So I'm sure it will be great. I'd love to come maybe <laughs> next year. No, not 2018. It's, uh, I'll be traveling myself a bit around the time, but I'm sure it's, uh, it's going to be amazing. So and where, where can people find more about you and your workshop online? Um, so yeah, it's on, it's all on my website, which is jordanerit.com. Um, on the main page, you'll see a link for Nicaragua awaits and it's got all the information on there. People can email me with any questions. Um, but it should be a really amazing trip. I'm super excited to show it to photographers because there's so many things that you want to shoot when you're there. And then one thing I want to mention is it's not for any particular experience level, even if you're just a cell phone photographer, there are going to be things for you to shoot there. If you've been shooting for the past 20 years, but you're maybe not familiar with Nicaragua and you want to have somebody help set up the situations for you and various shoots, this is great for you. So it's not, it's not geared toward anyone's specific experience level, but I'm going to be on hand to help people with whatever they need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good. And of course, we, we talked about the book. Uh, do you have a, a link to it on your website? Or maybe we will put a link to in the show notes for this episode? Um, I haven't put a link up yet, but I can put one up today to the Amazon pre-order. Um, so yeah, it's pretty easy to find. What's amazing is the first time you type your name into the Amazon search bar and something comes up. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of exciting. <laughs> Amazon for Jordana Wright and you'll find my book. <laughs> yep, very good. Uh, we will put a direct link anyway. And okay. um, I'm going to, to pre-order the book myself. Um, I'm sure I'll find a lot of uh, inspiration for, for this podcast too. I mean, having just, I mean, topics like we had today to talk about, I'm sure it's, uh, it's going to be a great source of inspiration. So thanks again for providing us with then with that and um anything else you would like to to say i don't think so i think that kind of covers my my stuff that i got going on right now good uh it was really a fun and interesting conversation really appreciated your uh, your time today and all the best for your next trips and uh the success of your book thank you you're welcome bye Bye.